0: Merrick probably needs little introduction. The Merrick name is synonymous with, of course, Channel Island surfboards, allegedly the largest surfboard manufacturer in the world. And that's because the label was founded by Brit's father. Al was born in New Jersey, but he moved to San Diego at seven, began surfing at 14, then moved to Santa Barbara at 21. He was in the water at Rincon in the late sixties when Bob McTavish showed up with shorter boards and performance possibilities for smaller surf started to explode al wanted increasingly short boards and the fastest way to get them was simply to make them on his own and by 1969 he was doing that under the channel islands surfboard label he really started to garner attention less than 10 years later when then current world champ sean thompson ordered a few boards then Davey Smith started doing airs on them, and local junior high schooler Tom Curran started winning every Pro-Am contest around. But I'll let Britt tell those stories. And another story that Britt will tell is that Burton Snowboards purchased Channel Island Surfboards in 2006. And in a storybook turn of events, Britt, along with a group of Channel Island's employees and team riders, purchased the brand back from Burton, on July 1st, 2021. So that's the exact reason why I'm interviewing him today to hear the why, how, and what this means for all of us and what it means for the surf biz at large. If you'd like to hear Britt's personal backstory, you can listen to episode 232 of Surf Splendor that was published in October, 2018. And today's show is recorded at Channel Islands HQ in Carpinteria, California on January 13th, 2021. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is my conversation with Britt Merrick. got your notes there?
1: Yeah. No. Your script? I scripted it all out. Um, well, Britt Merrick, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Cool. I'm stoked to be on again.
0: When do you think it was? When was our last one? I didn't look it up, but what do you oh, think? Oh, that's such a good question. Two years ago? Yeah. I'd say at least two. Yeah. I feel like we're fast friends already. Oh, yeah. All the pretense normally of like me interviewing somebody that I don't know
1: and I'm, you know, nerves, a little bit of nerves, yeah. all gone. Well, you know, I'm one of the guys that listens to your podcast regularly. So, you know, your voice is very.
0: But you didn't. First time I met you, you had never listened to a podcast.
1: Yep. Never heard <laughs> one until I was on one. Now I'm listening to all kinds of podcasts. We, In fact, when we went surfing just now, we had a cool chat about some of our favorite podcasts. Let people know. What's your favorite? What are your favorites? Uh, well, non-surf related. Uh, you and I both really like that one. Um uh, what, did, what was it called? Disgrace then? land. Disgrace land. That's incredible. Really stories is. about music and music history and rock and roll stuff and the tragedy of it and the self-destruction of it. That's fascinating.
0: Um, that actually came by a listener's recommendation oh, to really? me. Yeah. Did you hear me talk about it at some point? Nope. I feel like I've mentioned it once briefly,
1: mm. um, but I learned about it from a listener. Okay. I'm not sure how I came across it. Mm. I'm not sure. But once I did, I started binge listening. It's cool because I'm in the shaping room all day. So you have so much time to listen to stuff. So I'm always like talking to my friends like, hey, did you listen to, do you listen to? And they're Mm -hmm. like, "Uh, we have real jobs. right? (laughs) (laughs) We're not just like somewhere listening to podcasts all day. So there's that one. And then the one that I love is Dead and Gone. It's done by the same guy, Jake Brennan, who's a genius. And uh, that one's about people who have been murdered around the Grateful Dead scene. It all seems very macabre, but it's um, it's it, he does he he like really drills down um, from the investigative slant, mm. so he's really like a good investigator and he's like chasing down leads and like live he's he's recording live while he's confronting people what yeah he's confronting amazing. people who everybody thinks from this community probably were, was the guy who like murdered the people oh my gosh this is amazing he gets like chased off people's property and threatened and like it's pretty cool um i didn't know that there would be enough murders surrounding the grateful dead to create a <laughs> podcast series about why are there well, there's a reason why that is. And the reason is, um, it, within the Grateful Dead community. So we're all familiar with paranoia. There's something else called pronoia, right? If paranoia is the fear of all these things that might happen, pronoia is a sense that everything's always going to be fine and nothing bad is ever going to happen. And that's very much sort of the ethos of like the Grateful Dead community. So what that does is it creates a beautiful sort of community at times and vibe, right? But it also makes people vulnerable to be taken advantage of for actual bad stuff to happen, right? So mm-hmm. it, it can also be a sort of naivete, pro So I think that because there is like this high degree of pro historically within the Grateful Dead community, the people around the band, then bad actors can take advantage. And that's kind of been the story. Fascinating. Yeah.
0: And I'm surprised that the bad actors uh, were savvy enough to identify pro and that it exists and that it was unique to that little culture.
1: Well, don't you think bad actors have sort of a sixth sense for that? Probably. Right. They're probably. A vulnerability. Yeah. They're yeah. probably not. Maybe some are cognizant of it, but I think that there's just a certain element in society who, when they perceive that, their go-to is to take advantage.
0: You don't have to be very savvy, actually, now that I think about it, to recognize there's a big group of people there all on acid. <laughs> <laughs> and you can just go pull their wallet.
1: You can just mess with them pretty easily.
2: It's not I mean, that that's hard. really all it comes down no, to, right?
1: This isn't happening. <laughs> this is not real. Look at the unicorn. <laughs> These are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah, you're right there. That could get pretty creepy there's pretty quick. Yeah, there's that. But devolving into
0: murder is... What makes it interesting
1: yeah and you know really the the podcast as far as about a couple cases it's not like there's been a ton but so my
0: favorite podcast series have been that uh live investigative journalism style mm. those are so i'm thrilled to hear about this yeah because i do listen to disgraceland but i didn't and i've heard jake advertise yeah dead and gone yeah but i haven't actually listened to it yet for yeah. whatever way he advertised
1: it it didn't hook me right so i'm excited actually to have this to go back and listen to yeah it's pretty good the, the hook for me was a grateful dead because i used to i used to spend a lot of time in that world so that got me interested but now it's not all about that it's about the investigation he's right in the middle of it right now he's okay. in a, it's like he's in a gnarly zone
0: there was one series um called up and vanished and it was a a young investigative journalist Um, investigating murder or or it was actually a missing girl in a small town in middle America and doing exactly what you said. And then he'd publish the episode one week and he'd start getting feedback. And so he'd chase down these new leads based on what the feedback was coming in from something that he published on Monday. He'd be chasing down those leads Tuesday through Sunday and then edit that, put it out as a podcast on Monday. And he ultimately ended up solving the crime and it was a murder Wow, it was crazy wow yeah like did more more investigative detective work than the authorities had done see that's
1: cool because that is like a whole new thing totally right that's like a whole thing it's like crowdsourcing investigative work totally that's interesting yeah that's kind of cool yeah what other other podcasts do you love and do you most do you listen surf or non-surf stuff non-surf yeah i can't with surf to be yeah. honest. Right.
0: Um I'm just oversaturated with surf. Yeah. So I'll do it as a chore sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um I was telling you uh this is actually happening. I tend to oh, yeah. tend to binge things. So like yeah. with Disgrace Disgraceland when I found it, I did a deep dive through his archives and then I just kind of got off it. Yeah, and not right. because like, I still like it. I just kind of burn myself out maybe. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm doing with this is actually happening right now. And these are, it feels like you're um, sitting across from somebody in a therapy session and they pick a topic. Actually, it's not, I'm, I'm actually curious how the guy produces it. Because these people are so honest in their confessional. It would be uh, difficult to just put out a notice saying, hey, we want to find somebody who's dealing with postpartum depression. And then you get a hundred submissions and being able to find the one who's actually like very a good communicator, a very effective communicator. But ultimately he does a fantastic job in pre-production and he doesn't, you don't hear any of his interview questions. It's just an hour of a person explaining their story. One of them was, um, what if you were raised in a violent gang? That one, that other one was, what if you had postpartum depression? What if your mom left and joined a cult? What if you were into, you know, uh, adult diapers? Was the one I mentioned to you earlier, which mm-hmm. is a sex kink uh, that apparently is pretty pretty big. There's websites dedicated <laughs> to not it. Not good. I'm <laughs> so out on that. Don't shame. Maybe I'm there's a out listener out. right now. So I, I've been really, <laughs> I've been really into that series, and I find myself. Um, Sympathizing with people who wear adult diapers as a sex <laughs> as a sex turn on. I mean, seriously, I'm like tripping. I'm like because they, he goes all the way back and explains being raised in the Catholic Church and like the shame associated, and he's able to connect the dots between how kind of those early formative childhood experiences have affected his sexuality in adulthood, wow. and not in a way that's even like vilifying the Catholic Church or anything like that. It was just. That's a story. Yeah, it's just yeah. a kind of a matter of fact. Like these were the kind of inputs and these are the
1: outputs. Right.
0: And so, yeah, you find yourself really identifying or maybe sympathizing.
1: Yeah, or becoming empathetic too. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, so I don't know that that's ones for everybody. I can see a lot of the episodes triggering people. Tri- you know, and he actually puts trigger warnings at the beginning of oh, really? it, you know, like, oh, Hey, wow. if you're, if you've experienced sexual abuse, don't listen to this episode or oh, whatever kind of a uh, thing. So that one I've been really into that's on heavy. this road trip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, congratulations on 50 years of business. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, we're entering 51. Right? Yeah. We're in 51 In 51. Yeah. Um, to me, this have only a,
1: been alive for a
0: portion of it. I was going to say, i'm 48 close yeah you're almost there for all yeah, of it um to me this is a rags to riches story mm. that's the angle i love about this story mm. i think there's a lot of details to unpack in it and maybe we will but um and maybe and maybe there aren't riches to be honest <laughs> i'm i'm projecting well, it's
1: surfboard so riches are relative <laughs> right <laughs> but i love that it started in rags <laughs> yes definitely rags are definitely a bar.
0: <laughs> um The reason why we're meeting here is because Channel Islands LLC recently bought back Channel Islands surfboards from Burton. So we'll get into that. But none of it could have happened without your kind of full time commitment to the brand. In 1998, I think it was, uh, you and your wife Kate started a Friday night college ministry in Santa Barbara called Reality. Eight kids were in attendance on that first evening. In the 20 years since, eight more churches have been spawned from that little group that you put together and you maintained a full-time role as a head pastor for two decades. So tell me about your decision to leave that world and
1: commit full-time
0: to Channel Islands.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It was kind of a um, slow pendulum swing on on both sides of it. So prior to 1998, I was full-time at Channel Islands. You know the, the family business plan was always that I would take over. My dad tells a story that from the time I, he held me when I was a baby, he told my mom, we're going to build this business to give to this boy. Wow. I know. <laughs> I just got goosebumps when I said it. Um, and so that was always a plan my whole life. I just grew up in the surfboard industry in Channel Islands. I was always in the factory or the retail store. Um, I just literally grew up in it. And that was always a plan. And I loved that. Like, this you know challenge was started because my parents loved the surfing lifestyle and they love surfers and they love surfboards they love the joy that surfboards bring to people that deep connectivity of making something for someone my parents both experienced that my dad was making surfboards my mom was a seamstress and so while my dad was making boards she'd be making clothes and so this experience of like providing meaningful things for people is so much a part of building surfboards and i sort of took on that ethos very, very early. Um, And I was super into doing the surfboard thing. And I'd done everything you could do at Challenge from cleaning the shaping rooms, you know, to working in the retail store, to running the shaping machine, the first one we ever had, to shaping, um, to marketing. I did it all. And then, um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, very strong Christian home. And at some point, my wife and I just had this sort of deep burden for the kids that we surfed with here in our hometown, Carpinteria, all the time, that they felt like they were lost and they needed help. And we were looking for a way to help them. And our paradigm is and was at the time sort of Christianity. So we just kind of grabbed these kids and started teaching them Bible studies and, you know, trying to help them and guide them through the crazy teenage years And that turned into this whole reality thing and all these churches and all that stuff. But that was a slow pendulum swing. So I was kind of doing that thing on the side, the Bible studies and the ministry, but mostly my life was Channel Islands. And then ministry began to demand more and more and more of my time. And there just came this point where it was obvious that I couldn't sustain, my wife and I couldn't sustain doing both. And my parents were very involved in the whole thing. And we all looked at each other one night and were like, Britt and Kate can't keep doing both of these things. And we really feel like God is calling them to do this ministry thing. So it was really one of the most difficult things in my life because ministry wasn't my dream. Channel Islands was. Um, But I certainly felt that it was something I was supposed to do. My parents felt the same way. So there was a sense of like, this is cool. There's um, destiny and purpose here. But there's also a great degree of loss. Because this is what we know and this is what our dreams were around. This is what we want to do. And this is what we've invested in. And this is what we've planned toward. So, you know, long story short, we committed to the ministry. My parents had to go to Plan B. Plan B was they were getting near the time of retirement. And I was a retirement plan. But with me out of the picture, we need to sell the business. Burton came along and Burton was incredible. That worked out very well for my parents. Um, Burton has always been amazing to Channel Islands. You know, Jake Burton's whole thing was, it was really because Jake Burton was a surfer and he loved Channel Islands growing up. And so for him, it was a passion project. And uh, Burton's a very big company. There's a lot of structures around it, but he used to tell people at Burton, look, don't mess with my surfboard company. Hmm. Don't mess with them. So as long as we stay profitable, there wasn't any messing with. Um, And they're very, very helpful the whole time and very, very generous. And, um, so fast forward now to the last five years or so, I once again began dabbling in surfboards. And the story is my daughter, Daisy, which we talked about this last time had cancer and she was dying and I was having a really, really rough time, obviously, as we all were. And a friend of mine who was one of the kids in those early Bible studies that we started Um, that i hadn't been close to for a few years since showed up on my doorstep one day and said hey man my dad and i want to build a shaping room for you in your backyard and i said dude i haven't shaped a board in years like what are you talking about he said i know you haven't but i think you should i think you need to
2: Hmm.
1: and he and his dad came to my house and out of their own pockets they bought all the materials they built a shaping room in my backyard and I had to come to the factory and find my old shaping tools. And I went in there and started shaping. And, dude, it was like... I don't want to overstate it, but it was, um, it was almost salvific for me in the sense that, like, that really deep, difficult place that I was in dealing with my daughter and her um, inevitable passing. Shaping brought me to this place of incredible moments of peace, you know, shaping is one of those focal things like surfing or hiking or hunting or whatever it is. It's different for everybody, but it's one of those focal activities where it absorbs you wholly and completely, right? Like you're fully in the moment when you're shaping. So I, I didn't have anything like that for a long time. And I just found this incredible place of peace and healing, um, and shaping surfboards and then this also this really really deep reconnection with who i am and who my family is and something that's in me it's deeply in my dna and um that was just a really beautiful experience for me and i was just shaping boards for myself and my son and my wife and friends and stuff and then Channel Islands noticed and they began to kind of ask me, Hey, would you, you know do some stuff here and there? And so again it was a slow pendulum swing. It was a slow pendulum swing. And um my involvement with challenge became fairly tense, intense, excuse me. There was a lot going on. And I was there's was a lot going on with the ministry. And I just came for the second point in my life to this realization, like I can't do both of these. And you know what? Honestly. It's been an awesome two decades doing ministry and starting all these churches and helping all these people and doing all this stuff. And I'm really, really grateful for that. And I feel like I've done everything that I ever hoped to do there. And I'm not sure that I have much more to give in that realm. I was pretty, you know, I had kind of given everything that I could give. Um, and so I retired from that and then swung the pendulum once again to full-time surfboards. And man, it's been awesome. It's just been so incredible. And it's such a cool, full circle story to see it come back around, you know, and I had surrendered it fully, put it on the altar to speak in biblical terms and let it go and never thought it would come back around and to see it come back around is incredible. And I was talking with my dad and my mom about it recently. And they just felt like, man, it's just a cool thing that God did for our family. It really worked out well with the Burton thing and it's worked out really well to come back to the family. And we're just stoked. It's, it's a, uh, it's a really neat story. I'm really thankful for it.
0: It really is. And I, I mean, so many, I can only, I can kind of speak for the broader audience, I think, in that we all love this story and we're so happy to see it happen. And I don't mean to vilify Burton in any way, but whenever you see a corporate entity by a small family-run business, there's a little twinge of like, uh, you know, a little less humanity probably, but I get it. I know that dad needed the exit. Like I get it, but uh, a little twinge of something. So to see it kind of, the family be able to benefit from those things, but then still kind of get the small family-run company back 14 years later or whatever it is, with new blood in it is a really wonderful thing that I think everybody in the surf industry can feel proud about. Yeah, you know? Cool. And for it to be a 50 year old business at this point is freaking no small thing. You yeah. know, like it's a it's a really, really great story. But again, the rags to riches thing is really at the heart of it as well, knowing how humbly it all started makes it that much sweeter.
1: You know? Yeah. I mean my parents always tell the stories that when when they started the business, you know, they took out a two hundred dollar loan. And that's how they started it. And that's the only loan they ever took out the whole time. Just developing to buy the business, surfboard materials. They bought um, a barrel of resin and a bolt of cloth. My dad already had some foam, but he needed some glassy materials because he was doing all of it start to finish. Yeah. And so they took out that loan. And for them, that was a huge amount of money. Yeah. We were on welfare at the time. You know, we stood in line to get government milk and government cheese. We lived in a home that had grass growing through the floors and holes in the walls, you know, and... My parents were incredibly poor and my mom worked two jobs and my dad worked two jobs the whole time they were growing the business. Mm. So yeah, to see it come to, you know, a successful thing is incredible. They worked so hard and all the people along the way. And it's
0: also a story of this region too, to be honest, because this region has grown up a lot in that amount of time. And you talking about your dad just building things for people and your mom making the clothes for people. It's a small town feel. Yeah. and Carpinteria still is but Santa Barbara has grown up a lot in that amount of time but it still has kind of a small town feel and so you see the same people at the beach every weekend yep. and you can you see them at church or you see them at the store or whatever so to be able to kind of be handcrafting stuff for the community that you live in yeah. a, in a small town it's very different than doing it in a you know Trying to fake that in your marketing if you live in Los Angeles or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. totally. And that's that's the vibe. I mean, I'm a small town guy, right? Carpinteria, yeah. the town I was born and raised in, is 14,000 people, and every day I see people I've known for 40 plus right. years. You know, right, we right. just went and surfed Rincon. Like, I knew everybody that was walking out to the water. You know, and I'd known him my entire life. Right. Like that one guy that walked down with a longboard, Danny. Mm-hmm kind of wild looking guy who's like, my suit hasn't been dry th- since Thanksgiving. Yeah. I've known that guy since I was like three years old. No way. Yeah. That thin through. setup he was rocking was wild. Did <laughs> yeah. you see that? I didn't notice this. Man. He had a
0: quad setup and oh, on, on a long, longboard yeah. with a swallowtail in the back. Yeah, that's right.
1: And two of the front two were like upright and kind of egg shaped. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that small town vibe. And I love it, man. Nothing makes me more happy when I go surf my local break and there's someone i know for years and they're stoked on their board. Yeah. Like that, that's it for me. That's why I love building surfboards. You know, my dad instilled in me this ethos of serving surfers. I think that comes from our Christianity. Like a big part of Christianity is this idea of serving others, right? Consider others more important than yourself. And so my dad incorporated that into my, both my parents into the surfboard world. So I really pick that up. So I I really get a deep sense of fulfillment when I help someone have a better experience surfing or to surf better. Like that to me really makes me happy. So when I go down to the local break and someone's like, dude, I'm so stoked on this board. That's really, really fulfilling to me because I know what surfing means to people, right? It means different things at different stages of our life. But if you stick with it, it means a lot right? Like we are much better people when we're surfing on the regular. Mm-hmm. would not you agree? hundred <laughs> percent. Like, you know, it means a lot to people. And so to be able to contribute to that through a surfboard and a surfboard can really make or break someone's experience, right? And a good surfboard could increase their joy exponentially. So that's it for me. When I go down, someone's like, dude, I am so stoked on this board. There's this girl named Bo who surfs Rincon all the time. She hadn't had a new board in a few years and I just made her this board and she will not stop talking about how much more fun she's having and how stoked she is because she got the right board and hasn't been stoked for years because she's gotten a little older and she didn't need more paddle power and all this stuff. And like, that's why I love making surfboards. Yeah. I love that sense of like, I made it with my hands and it made you happy. Mm. That's a beautiful thing.
0: You could see, especially on days like today where the waves aren't, like connecting all the way through there's slow sections and fat sections of the wave. You can see very clearly which boards are working well and which ones aren't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the decision for Channel Islands LLC to take back the company. Um, why was Burton willing to offload it and who's involved in the, uh, LLC?
1: Yeah. Well, they were not looking to sell it. Okay. Um, CI has been profitable. In fact, this year when we bought it, we just came off of one of our best years ever. Our bottom line has been up over a thousand percent. That is wild. It's an actual number. A
0: thousand percent from the previous year. From the previous year. What?
1: Yeah, the bottom line. Um, so did you cut a bunch of costs? We did. We, we learned to run leaner, but okay. also e-com was huge during okay. COVID. Okay, So it was running leaner. It was e-com. It was some other moves that we made, but it's, yeah, it's incredible. Top line is way up too, but the bottom line is so they weren't looking to get rid of Channel Islands by any means. We've been profitable. But when Jake passed last year, Jake was the champion of the brand there at Burton and Burton, though it's huge. It's a family run business, right? His wife Donna now runs it and his sons are involved which is incredible. Um, So there's a family vibe there. But once Jake passed, it was kind of like, whose thing is Channel Islands at Burton? Because it was his passion project. So we began a dialogue with them at that time, and they were super stoked on the idea of the employees and the family getting it back. They were willing to do anything for it to go that way. They love the story. Hmm. You know, they obviously have cared about Chow Jake cared about Chow Islands. Since Burton has owned Chow Islands, they've acquired a bunch of other companies and then got rid of them. But Chow they always kept. They loved it. Jake loved it. So they really cared about the brand and the company and the people. Most of the people that are here now were here when Burton acquired us. So there's longstanding relationships. Um, so they were super stoked on that idea, and they've been incredibly generous, very helpful in making the deal happen, and that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to come back to the employees and the family, and we were able to bring in some team members. So it's myself, um, a few other employees who have been here for 20-plus years, several of them, and then a few team members, um, all three Godowskis brothers, Dane Reynolds, Lakey Peterson, um, Yaden Nickel. And I better not be forgetting anyone or I'm in trouble, but I might be Parker. Yes. Thank you so much. Sorry, Parker. (laughs) (laughs) Parker coffin. Sorry, (laughs) Parker coffin. So that's so cool, right? To have all those guys and and that girl Lakey invested. Um, that just feels like a real sort of vote of confidence that they're like, yeah, I want to be in this thing long term and to own part of it. And they're great partners. And then like I said, all the um, employees that bought in. Have been here for so long, so it's a really rad. Feels like um, a rebirth, and there's fresh unction. You can feel like there's fresh unction in the building. You know, we're all like excited and reinvigorated and stoked. So, man, I'm over the moon about the scenario. It's really cool. Uh, why invite the team riders to be a part of it? Well, we needed to raise some more capital. And I'm not into the idea of just bringing in outside investors. I'm just not. Um, This thing is, you know, it's, I don't know. It just didn't feel like the vibe. It's just not the vibe. So um, the idea was, let's see if team members want to get involved. And they did. I think it's a genius move. Yeah. I I just hadn't necessarily seen it before in surfing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's happened, but... You know we just had the idea like okay well they're professional surfers they might have some money and yeah you know, they're involved and they've helped build the brand like you can't even think about how much has dane reynolds contributed to channel islands like his contribution is already huge what's so it only their, makes sense so what's their role uh they, Does their role changed from what it was before No, nope, their role hasn't changed they're still athletes that surf for us um you know, we will have quarterly owner meetings where they have voting rights and they're able to speak into stuff, but the management remains the same. So we're still running the business. It's not as that we've brought them in to help run the business, um, but we will have owner meetings where they have voting rights and input and they have that anyway, which is great. So, yeah. I'm curious if you've spoken to Kelly Slater
0: since this <laughs> transfer of ownership my brother kelly whom i love no i have not spoken to him um he was obviously arguably the most influential team writer of all time um for channel islands who then left to go invest very similarly in a different brand a competing brand Mm -hmm. and is arguably your biggest competitor now so i think uh the implement, the business model that you're implementing he probably probably would have loved the opportunity to participate in if timing had aligned you know when he made his move if this opportunity was there i'm
1: sure he would have been first in line so it's an interesting dynamic yeah well he actually tried to buy channel islands oh yeah so he was in, he wanted to buy at least a portion of it and uh, burton wasn't interested at the time and that's when he went elsewhere to buy so I I think we never had a direct conversation about it, but at the time he was just looking to own clothing yeah. boards, all the stuff, right? Yeah. Why not? So yeah, you know, it's unfortunate, and who knows? Maybe it's fortunate. I mean, things work out the way that they're supposed to. But that was his thing. He wanted to own part of Channel mm-hmm. Islands, and it wasn't available, so he went elsewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's a timing. Thing. Yeah. But it's interesting that now they would be arguably one of the bigger competitors for the yep. brand, you know? Yep. Um, what's your role? How has your
1: role changed? My role hasn't really effectively changed. I mean, my thing is I like designing and making surfboards and working directly with surfers, right? That's what floats my boat. So I have the freedom to do that. Um, obviously, I'm kind of the CEO or whatever, although I'm not totally sure what that means. But so I have some, you know, responsibility and the bucks to, the bucks to some degree will stop here. But the guys that have been effectively running the business for years do an incredible job and they have been here since um, long before Burton, right? The two guys that are my main partners in this thing, um, we worked together when we were teenagers at Channel Islands. They've been here their whole adult life. And so they know what they're doing. They're excellent. I don't mess with them. I don't need to. But we have a great sort of working relationship. It's very collaborative. Um, but I, what I want to do is to be able to go surf and then get in the shaping room and then talk to surfers about what they need and design boards. Like, that's what I want to do. So I try to keep anything else to a minimum. Um, what did Burton do for
0: Channel Islands? that Channel Islands maybe couldn't have done on their own without Burton's involvement? And will that go away now that Burton's not there?
1: Uh, I don't believe there's anything that Channel Islands could not have done on its own. Um, there was obviously when they when they first acquired us, there was an influx of resources. Um, we got a new building and they built it out and that was excellent. And then throughout the years, they've provided a really good back-end HR and accounting and whatnot. They're excellent at that. They have great systems for that. So we've had to take that on ourselves. So that's one of the big things. Um, But that's not anything that we could not have done ourselves. And again, Jake's thing was like, don't mess with my surfboard company. So if you didn't know, if you worked here and you didn't know that Burton owned us, you would never know. Right. You would just think Channel Islands. In fact, I know there's people that didn't. They knew because at some point Burton was on their check, but they didn't think that way at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of treated me like I owned it. And they would even say, "Well, it's your company." This is before we acquired it. I'd be like, "Well, actually, it's not." Um, so, they, you know, they were pretty hands off and generous and cool.
0: Uh, from the consumer standpoint, who's trying to buy Channel Islands surfboards around the world, did Burton kind of open up supply chain,
1: distribution chain, any of that stuff for Channel Islands? Ultimately, they did not. Though that was the plan initially. Okay. So the plan initially was to own all of our manufacturing all around the world. And it did not work out. So now we have a licensee model all around the world, which works out great, right? Because licensee goes directly to the bottom line. And we have incredible partners um, all over the world. So that was their plan. And it didn't work.
0: So, so I would like for you to try to explain why it didn't work. But let's couch it under this next question, which is, there's kind of a general feeling, I don't know, in surfing that like quality and a tailored fit of a surfboard is associated with a small manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Go to your local shaper, Mm -hmm. he'll make the board that's right for you and it's high quality, right? And kind of the flip side of that equation is, let's say pop-outs that are coming out of Asia, models, they're models and they come out of Asia and they end up on the surfboard rack. Um, is there a way to kind of maintain the standards of quality and tailored fit if you're making boards for people in Southern California, Australia, and Spain simultaneously? Mm-hmm. And is that generalization that I even said correct? And where does CI fit in? Yeah, that's in a that? great
1: question. So we think a lot about that, and we've been super intentional about that. So our our um, value, is local board builders building boards for local surfers so everywhere that we have a licensee that's who's doing it so in australia we have a licensee on board they're incredible partners and our shaper thomas there in the gold coast lives in the gold coast was all the surfers surfs on the gold coast fish fishes on the gold coast and he makes boards for those guys over there they're our designs but he's also able to adapt them for what the surfers over there need and what the conditions require the same with our shapers in sydney the same with our shapers in bali you know kutch there is a great guy Chris Kutch, and he makes boards specifically for Bali. Again, they're all our designs. All our designs come from here. They all come from this factory and from us working together, but they're able to adapt them for their waves, and that's the same in every other place. It's local board builders, and that's really our value. That's what we try to do here. Everyone that works in this building lives here right? And they all surf here and they're all locals and we all build boards for people that we know and people that we don't know, obviously, but that's the value. So we don't do the Asia thing. We're not having our boards built in Asia. Um, We're having them built locally by our licensees for those local places. And that's because it's a lifestyle thing for us.
0: How do you uh, maintain quality control?
1: Well, part of my responsibility is to, I haven't been able to on COVID year, but is to go to those places, right? And work with those shapers and glassers and make sure that stuff is going well. Um, Our partners also have a high degree of integrity. And when we come out with a new design, we send them the finished product and say, this is what it's supposed to look like, feel like, this is a tuck, this is a finish, here's the tail, here's the nose. And so they have no excuse not to do it right. We spend a lot of time working on our files. And we stay on top of it. But like before COVID hit, I would regularly go to these places and work with the shapers and work with the glassers and work with the millers and make sure that everything was the way it's supposed to be. And I love doing that. You know, last year I went to Europe a couple different times. Um, We have incredible partners there, a lot too. And, you know, I I love being in a room with several shapers and saying, okay, look, here's how we want to do the tuck. Here's how you want to do the concave between the fins right here. Here's how we want to finish the nose. No, this is the way that the rail should feel. And man, that's so fun. And they're responsive to it. Like they're craftsmen. Mm -hmm. They want to do well. They want the boards to feel right. Yeah. I mean, if you partner with the right people. Yeah. Yeah. So we we work really hard on that. So that is the
0: licensee model. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was Burton looking to do and why didn't it work?
1: Burton was looking to do globally what we do here, where we own the factory, right, and we do all the shaping and the glassing and the milling and everything in house. I think it was just too big of a beast, yeah. Um, and I don't know all the details because those were my absent years, um, but it was just too big of a beast. Running a factory from here in Europe proved to be difficult. Running a factory from here in, you name the location, proved to be difficult. So, and that was the explicit plan, and they went hard after it, and just kind of pull it. It sounds almost impossible. Dude, running a surfboard factory is a thing, bro. It's a thing. I know. <laughs> it's like... I know. It's
0: it's it's challenging. Well, I mean, in theory, the licensees that you're working with could just become employees, obviously. You buy... There'd be a lot more expense, obviously. Mm-hmm. So you're buying a building and then hiring all that. But it's almost like the HR department and everything that Burton was providing on the back end, you would need... Remotely, right. because their needs are different in Spain than they are in Southern California. So you couldn't have the brain here with satellite arms. There would have to be brains everywhere. Yeah. And it's just, they would have to all be that much more profitable to justify all of that expense. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem doable. It's a lot.
1: Yeah. I don't I don't know if anyone's doing it. I don't know. Yeah, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. Um,
0: why are you guys making mid-lengths? tell me about the mid and did that add to the profitability of channel islands in 2020
1: (laughs) does Chaz make you ask this question not at all not at all (laughs) we're calling it the Chaz length now (laughs) (laughs) uh
0: it's a departure from the brand's identity i would say but
1: it's wildly successful but i mean from the outside
0: it looks wildly successful
1: yeah it's totally not actually a a departure for us um we've always done boards like that Um, my dad developed this board in the 80s called the m13 and originally it was called old blue and it it came from he was surfing marine con he was getting a little bit older he's like dude i gotta catch more waves so he stretched the board out it had a round nose on it and he started catching a lot more waves but my dad has always been super performance oriented he was a great surfer he was passionate about great surfing so it couldn't just be about catching waves like the board had to turn well so that's actually really really deep in who we are and Mm -hmm. that was a huge huge model for us for years and years oh yeah old blue m13 we still have people who live and die by the m13 really so you're still making them oh yeah we're still making them um and then after that we had a bunch of different models the water hog is actually one of our best-selling models and it's it's popular all around the world. I think it's a hideous board, but it predates my pre my coming back. But um, so we've actually always done that because the value is not just making the best boards for the best surfers, but it's making great boards for every surfer, right? So there's only you know a certain amount of surfers who can surf a six two performance shortboard. So we've actually always done that. We just kind of hit a hot streak with a mid um, Devin Howard got involved he's got a really good sense of those boards so he's been really helpful to kind of help us nail that zone um and i i I just think the desire and the need is there so but that's always been our thing like how can we bring the most stoke to the most people and everybody does it Right? We just kind of hit a hot streak with a mid, but everybody's making boards like that. But
0: not everybody makes as many boards as you guys make around the world. That's kind of the thing that I'm impressed by is how quickly you guys adapt to a market trend or certainly set market trends at, time, at times. Um, but considering all of those moving pieces that you explained about manufacturing around the world, I'm impressed that you can roll out stuff as quickly as you do.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because from my perspective, it feels painfully slow. Really? Yeah, it takes us a little while to bring stuff to market, especially now because we're so maxed on production. Um, so I don't know. That's cool that that's your perception. I guess we, we, we must have hit the timing okay with that one. Um, yeah. I, by the time we get a board to market, I'm already like super sick of it and over it. Sure. And like three designs down the road. So to me, it feels like a very long Sort of process.
0: I mean, I've seen boards just around here and in your car that it's like, yeah, if this comes out in six months from now or a year from now, I can absolutely see this being the next huge hit, you know? So I think your timing is actually good. Cool.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Thanks. Good for the broad market.
0: That's the thing too, is like you and I are kind of uh, surveying, surfing on a very granular level. But for some of that stuff to actually hit the broad market, it takes a year. Yeah. And so you have that much time, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, I was recently in the shaping room with Dane and Andrew Doheny. And they were describing, they were both writing a board that I had made for Dane. And uh, they were calling it Soapy. Like <laughs> it s- slides around? Soapy. <laughs> What is that? I had not heard that one. It just, it it sounds like it just kind of went rail to rail pretty easily, kind of rolled on the middle of the board. You know what I mean? Like you can picture a bar of soap in your hand wiggling back and forth. I guess soapy. It was great. So every surfer has their own sort of vocabulary. And then part of the adventure is like, okay, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, because that one's a little more ambiguous. Yeah. Sometimes it is like a really creative way, but it's like crystal clear what they're saying. Yeah. Soapy, I could interpret. In a few different ways. Yeah, I had to ask. I had to ask. But once he said it, I was like, oh,
1: yeah, okay, that's pretty cool. That's funny. That's pretty cool. Um, And Parker has been super helpful. Parker's good with feedback. Is he? Yeah. He's he's really sharp. He's definitely beyond most surfers. You know, he's able to kind of identify um, that something might have to do with a curve between his feet or the curve under his front foot or it needs a little more rocker at about two feet. So... He's been super good with that. Yadin's provided some great feedback on that design as well lately. Awesome. Yeah. Uh,
0: I feel like Parker is going to hit, hit like he's an unsung hero. Yeah. Uh, I think he got overshadowed a little bit by Connor, maybe with Connor being on the CT and stuff, but Parker in that amount of time from when they were doing their young wise tales blog or whatever, Parker's gotten so fit his surfing has gotten so unbelievably sharp and to see him now with a new relatively new sponsor i'm like man i really hope that that allows him to kind of uh find his path as a professional surfer really solidify his identity in the surf kind of industrial complex because he has everything that you would want out of a
1: surfer he just needs i don't know what yeah, that's a good thought. It, it, he he, I, I would say he is kind of undersung at this moment and underrated. He's incredible when you watch him surf. Yeah, totally. and he's the whole package. The barrels, the cars, totally. the airs, the whole thing.
0: Yeah. And you could see that he's like dialed down like his discipline and his work ethic and he's smart and yep. all that stuff. You could see that he's done that in the recent years. Yep. And again, getting fit. So it's like because the media landscape is all like kind of diffused and there's, and even the brands aren't really pushing their individual athletes that hard anymore. And even if they are like, where do you do it? Where do you push them yeah. just on Instagram, yeah. have them make a video, put it on stab. Like right. what traction does that really give you in the market? Yeah. It's almost like he and pa- Connor did such a good job with the young wise. They did a good job of um, promoting themselves at a time when not everybody else was and he needs some of that again right you know like just start building your own brand don't
1: wait for anybody else to do it Yeah, one of the biggest things that parker has going for him is his personality Yeah, yeah totally like he's just he's so pleasant to be around right he's just one of those people yeah like you want to be around him You're stoked when he talks, like when he talks to you, he looks you in the eye, he's fully engaged. He's like encouraging, but without BS, you know, like there's no, um, there's no guile. Like, yeah, I think that if he could somehow like bring that to the forefront again, he's just really attractive in that way. I agree.
0: 2021 is a year of parker
1: yeah you heard parker it there first. you are <laughs> i forgot about you in the ownership list for a second but this you is new year you knew he was no it was coming i yeah, just you coming. got to it before i did you're younger um, than i am <laughs> um
0: what does your dad think of this ownership transition
1: uh my dad and my mom are super stoked i mean you know they built challenge with blood sweat and tears. And though it was nice for them and a cool windfall to sell it to Burton, that wasn't their dream. It just wasn't. Their dream was that it would always be in the family. So I think it feels a bit like a dream come true. Uh, I think it's immensely satisfying for them, you know, that what they've built is now in the hands of family and old, old employees and team members. I think it's really satisfying, which makes me really happy for them. You know, my mom's in her mid-70s and my dad will turn 78 in March. Um, They're both in incredible health and super spry, super active. I see them every single day. Um, But I think it's neat for them sort of in those years to say, oh, cool. It's gone that way. That's really rad. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, They're totally uninvolved, though. Okay. No financial investment whatsoever. Not a single cent. Um, They don't have any role in the business at all. Why would they want to? I mean... No, they're, I mean, you know, Yeah. but it's cool.
0: I'm struck by the business savvy of your father and maybe your mother as well in that there's kind of savant level talents in the world and maybe he falls into this category, I don't know. Like Whitney Houston would not be stopped. You know, like she was such a great singer. People, the world would bang down her door just to listen to her sing. There was no kind of getting out of that. And then there's kind of um, ambitious people that won't rest until they take over the world. Or the flip side of that is you can have the hardest work ethic in the world and never work your way out of anonymity if you don't have some of the talent or the ambition or whatever. Yeah. Your dad ultimately built the biggest surfboard brand in the world, maybe, is it? Is Channel Islands the biggest surfboard manufacturer? No, you tell me. I think it is. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did your... But baked in that is a bunch of his insights into taking advantage of opportunity because he could have all the hard work ethic in the world and ambition and he's a talented guy, but like you have to really capitalize on opportunity and make good business decisions along the way. You could have flubbed it a million times along the 50 years. So, the beginning of that was I'm really impressed and struck by your dad's business savvy. Um, And I think it actually, you might have some of it as well because to build eight churches in 20 years is no small feat either. And it's doesn't sound like something that either of you went to school to learn how to do the business kind of aspect side of it.
1: What do you attribute it to? And did he instill it in you? Yeah. Well, uh, So, as far as my dad, it was very much from the day one, Channel Channel Islands was a partnership, my mom and my dad together. And my mom played a huge role. And my mom is super business savvy. She was a bookkeeper until the day she retired. No way. Yeah. Crazy. And she ran the retail store for years and years and years and years. And all the business decisions were always my mom and my dad together. So, my mom deserves, when it comes to the business end of things, a huge amount of credit. Um, She was really amazing at that, and they were great partners. What's her name? Terry. Terry Merrick. And she's a mother to many. Anyone who's ever worked for my mom loves her. Um, So, and then beyond that, my parents are really, really committed to integrity and treating people well. So, they always took care of their employees. They always took care of their vendors and they were always honest about their dealings and they dealt with people in a way that was kind and generous and honest and they had integrity in their business dealings. And I think in the long term, that kind of thing pays off. You know, I mean, I would hope we live in a world where it does. I'm not sure sometimes. Yeah, I know. I mean, truly. Yeah, no, I, I, and I totally get what you're saying. And I think as someone who's trying to kind of, live in a similar way as them. I struggle with that at times because I look at the success of others who I know are not integrous and I know are not doing those things, things that way, but there has to be a a sort of a higher impetus that propels that. But that was their thing. Like integrity, honesty, generosity. Those are the things that they practiced. And then my dad just refused to ever be satisfied when Mm. it came to surfboards. He just refused to be satisfied. It could always be better. It could always be better. Um, And that was that driving, artistic, creative, craftsman thing. And he certainly took that to business. Like, we can go further. We can go further. And he did the hard work. I mean, my dad tells me stories about the early 70s and making a bunch of boards from beginning to end, loading them in a van and driving them to the East Coast to try to sell them. And walking into surf shops, cold turkey in 1974 to be like, I'm Al Merrick. This is a board I built. I've got a van load of them. Will you buy one? You know what I mean? Like he did the hard work and that's commitment. So I think they brought those um, characteristics and qualities and values to the business. And then I think a lot of it also, though, was uh, serendipitous or Mm. fortuitous. I mean... So Sean Thompson in 1977, fresh off winning a world title, comes to Santa Barbara because he wants to surf RingCon, starts to ask around, who's a hot shaper? I want a board for RingCon. Oh, well, that's Al Merrick. So now my dad in 1977, you know, eight years into the business, nine years into the business, is shaping boards for a world champion, right? And learning. Sean brought my dad the first twin fin my dad had seen. Sean had a twin fin that he conned MR into making for him. MR didn't want to make him a board because MR and Sean were competing. Sean finally got a board from MR, brought it to my dad. My dad started making boards based on that at RingCon and Zoom. And then again, Sean in 1981, had got a thruster off Simon Anderson, brought it to my dad. Look at this. My dad had never seen a thruster. Started making thrusters, testing them at RingCon. At that same time, there was a young Tom Curran. It was a perfect time to transition a young Tom Curran from the twin fin to the thruster. And that was a huge one, right? The Almeric thruster developed around Tom Curran was like a thing. You oh, still man. see design characteristics of it in short boards today. But to have Sean Thompson and then a budding Tom Curran, and then only a few y- years later to have Kelly Slater come on board, those are like magical, fortuitous, serendipitous um, things, you know, and those happened. And I think any real success story has those in them, right? There's got to be a bit of magic, luck, blessing, sovereignty, whatever you want to call it in there somewhere. And they certainly had their fair share of that. Yeah. I wonder, it's interesting. It's a bigger
0: conversation, but I wonder how much of it he wills, your dad wills to himself too or attracts, let's say, through all those good deeds, through all those good business dealings and like integrity and all that stuff, you know, it,
1: there's a karmic attraction to it. Yeah, there has to be. I want to believe there is, right? I want to believe that doing the right thing pays off. Yeah. Yeah. I was raised that way. I was raised that way. Yeah. (laughs) The one thing I am going to embrace, though, is never to be satisfied. I mean, never. that wasn't the word you used, but... That is the word I used. Oh, was it? He said that to me explicitly when he was teaching me to shape. So he was teaching me to shape, and I make a good board, and I get all stoked, and he would say, don't ever be satisfied with yourself or your boards. Yeah, I'm going to embrace that. It could always be better. Now, there's a really cool side to that, and there's a shadow side to that, right? The shadow side is... That then you only feel as good as your last board. And as a young man and as a kid, I watched my dad struggle with that. When the boards were working great, he was on top of the world. When they weren't, it was very difficult for him. And I experience that same thing now, right? So because I've taken on that same value, um, I sometimes I feel I'm only as good as my last board. So when I get negative feedback or team writers not stoked or the boards just aren't clicking, that's like affects me deeply. I don't sleep. I don't feel well on the other end of it. When they are clicking and the boards are working good and people are stoked, I'm really, really happy. And there's somewhere in there where I'm probably assigning too much value to both ends of that equation. Mm. Right? So I think a place of balance and health and wholeness somewhere a little more in between and not living on the extremes. But I think that greatness is often discovered, lived out, and manifested on the extremes. Totally. Right? Back to our favorite podcast of Disgraceland. Those are podcasts about greatnesses that ended in destructive places because of their greatness, perhaps. You know what I mean? Oh, he's got another good one called The 27 Club. Yes. Oh, my gosh. About everyone who died at 27? It's freaking crazy. Dude, it's freaky. It really is. I remember th- when I was 27 thinking, okay, I'm going to for sure die. <laughs> you thought you were. Wow, you, well, thought you, you know in your mind you're a rock star, but you aren't. I was you in were big, in the
0: pantheon <laughs> of like <I> <laughs> Kurt Cobain and Jim Morrison oh and Janis gosh. Joplin, yep. Amy Winehouse. Wow. Jimi Hendrix. This is quite Keith the reveal. Moon.
1: Yeah, this is a reveal. Yep, I was in the pantheon. So anyway, you know, uh, I think you have to have that thing that drives you. Um, but that can be difficult to live through and live with. Difficult for your family to live with.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're, you have everything and you're still unhappy. Yeah.
1: And I'm not saying I'm unhappy. Um, satisfied. I'm, I'm deeply affected when boards aren't going well. Yeah. And deeply, deeply satisfied when they are. And I think for me... There's, there's well-being and wholeness to find a middle place. You know what I mean? Well,
0: um, there's a common thing in business that afflicts the third generation. Mm. So how do you transfer everything that your dad instilled in you into Isaiah? Yeah. I mean, Isaiah is raised with, he's got it all. Shows up at RenCon with his dad. Everybody knows his dad. <laughs> You're the local hero. It's got this surfboard factory, got licensees around the world, hanging out with Dane Reynolds on the weekends. (laughs) Very glamorized snapshot there. It
1: is. (laughs) So how do you instill the hard work ethic and uh, all of those things? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I would imagine that uh, as a surfer in a small town, it's probably not easy to be Al Merrick's grandson and then my son, you know, i And he was also a pastor's kid, which is like the worst case scenario, right? Didn't even think about that. Yeah, when you're a pastor's kid, everyone thinks you're going to be the perfect kid. Because everyone thinks the pastor's perfect, which is total BS. Right? They're usually like the most broken people. And they're doing this job because they're trying to sort through their own brokenness. But then you have this pastor's kid who's living through the insanity that ministry is like really, really hard. Right? In ministry, you're dealing with the hardest things that humanity faces on the regular
0: Mm -hmm.
1: on the regular. So to see that um, tumultuous sort of emotional, spiritual reality that is ministry and then have people expect of you to be perfect because you're the pastor's kid is like an insane situation to have to live in. So he had to live through that. He had to live through his, his little sister contracting and dying of cancer and then he's got to live through, like, I'm third in the line of this legacy of, you know, one of the greatest surfboard companies ever. Like, man, that's got to be tough for that kid, you know? Totally. Yeah. But you can't pander to any of that. You can't baby no, you it. Can't. No, I mean, true. do you give him a
0: broom and make him sweep sweep the shaping bay? <laughs> so How do you?
1: So one of the things my wife and I did early on with him was we tried to instill in him a good work ethic. So we did that early on through chores and earning and rewards and stuff like that. And he has a good work ethic. He has different passions right now than surfboards, which is cool. He does work in the surfboard factory, but he's passionate about filmmaking. He's an incredibly talented filmmaker, uh, videographer, photographer. Editing is his jam. He's amazing in editing stuff. Um, So that's like his passion that he's pursuing right now. And he's also 20. So he goes to the skate park every night. You know he's skating, he's fooling around with his friends, and he's out too late and he's having fun. And um, I want him to do what is life giving for him. He's got talent in surfboards. I may have told you the story before, but I was teaching him to shape a few years ago, and then I asked my dad, "Hey, will you come and help Isaiah shape?" My dad was helping him a bit, and when he did his first hand shape, start to finish, my dad said, "This is the best." first surfboard i have ever seen from anybody Hmm. and the thing about my dad is when it comes to surfboards he does not bs he does not hand out compliments easily i mean i have worked for how i can't do math 30 years to try to get compliments from my dad on my surfboards not kidding you like he just doesn't do that he's not impressed like he's freaking almeric you know what i mean and so for him to say that was like a real thing. I know there's a grandfather, grandson thing, but it was like a real thing. And if you look at the board, the kids got talent, but shaping is a hard road. Shaping is a hard road. And in our minds, it's not just like learn shape 3D and press print and make yeah, it right. like, you have to learn to shape, you have to learn the craft. And that takes a lot of dedication. That's a hard road. So that has not been his path thus far. He did it for a while. He's worked in our glass shop. He's now installing our tech with Spine Tech. He's doing airbrushing and a few different things. And if he chooses to do surfboards, he's got an incredible opportunity. And that's awesome. If he chooses not to, he's got a lot of other talents and passions that I'm excited to see.
0: Yeah, I'm excited uh, as well. Like I think it would Getting all that life experience and having those other passions will actually just give him more inputs into Channel Islands. If he ever does come to work for the brand full time, yeah. it's better that he has that world of experience out there to apply I agree. to the job here. If he just was kind of born and raised in a shaping bay and never got out of it, it's a pretty limited view. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, maybe the brand needs growth beyond the shaping bay after that. for sure. And he could
1: even put his filmmaking talent to work for the brand. For sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he's doing, he's doing um, filming and editing stuff for us for social media and stuff like that. And he does Good. a great job. Good. Yeah. How do you feel being the face of the
0: brand now? I mean, <laughs> like you're, we walk up to the front doors, your face is on those doors. It's, um. and I'll start by saying, it's a great image. The beard, the the <laughs> hair sticking out of the hat. Like it's it suits, it makes the brand feel like a family still. There's like a humanity to it with your imagery. And uh, it couldn't have worked out better. Like you're a great mascot for the brand essentially. So how does it feel being the mascot for the brand? Thanks, that's funny
1: <laughs> and embarrassing. But nice of you to say. Well, I've had the beard for a long time, so that's not contrived. You shaved it. I saw you shave it once. Yeah, but I've had it for a long time. It went away and it came back. Okay, when it went away, you know why it came back? No. I didn't tell my wife and I just shaved it and I walked in the room and she went, no. No way. Yes. (laughs) She hadn't seen my face in years and she went, no, grow it back now and don't ever shave it. (laughs) Hilarious. Hilarious. So I don't know what that says when you look better with your face covered.
0: Right. (laughs) She's like, you know what? Start wearing a mask around the house too.
1: Yeah. So, um, I don't know, dude, I'm stoked, man. Like I, I feel a lot of pride in what my family and my friends have built. Good. You know, I feel a lot of pride in that and there's just a deep, deep connection for me. And so, uh, man, I feel honored and privileged and, um, enthused and energized and full of vision to keep doing that. You know, to me, surfboards are like, it's not just a thing. It's a beautiful thing. Like, I, I can't, what company was it that said only a surfer knows a feeling? Billabong. Yeah. Good job, Billabong. Mm-hmm. Like, they nailed that. That's so true, right? There's this thing that we all experience together. And you know what? Not to throw shade on any of the clothing companies, but like trunks don't matter. T-shirts don't matter. Wetsuits don't matter. Surfboards matter. Totally. Quicksilver, Billabong, that stuff does not matter. Yeah. But surfboards matter they make or break the experience and people have some of the best experiences of their lives on something that I made with my hands and that these guys back here put their hands on. That's just a rad thing. And are there many things like that in our world? No, it's a rarity. No, it's really hard to even think of another thing like that in this day and age. Wine. See, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it's, um,
0: it's more trans. Do
1: people have better experiences on surfboards or wine?
0: <laughs> it's a, now that'd be a debatable question. I feel bad spending money on wine because it goes away. You know, like...
1: <laughs> and surfboards don't, much to the chagrin of
0: environmentalists. <laughs> I mean, I mean, a surfboard I don't have to feel as bad about because, yeah, you'll get longer use out of it. But yeah. with wine, I do feel bad Like, God, how do you justify spending $50 on a (laughs) bottle of wine? It's going to be gone in, like, an hour. But I will also argue, I don't know, like, that's what I love about it, too. Yeah. Like, it's kind of embarrassing to covet objects. Mm. Like, oh, I'm going to buy an expensive watch and, like, look at it and whatever. Mm. Like... No, I like the idea of it being washed away, you know. And and if it is an art form or a craft, like an artisan craft, which both wine and surfboards are, that you actually um, benefit from the better version of it,
2: yeah,
0: it somehow informs your life or inspires you or whatever. Then it's completely justifiable. Then there's no better thing to spend the fifty bucks on or the more money on, you know. Right.
1: So I'm. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something incredible about a craft made by hand. Functional. Yeah. That that, you use. Yeah, and that that brings people happiness. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, 2020 was crazy. You know what I mean? Like, spaces of happiness are a real commodity, Mm. a real value. Mm -hmm. And surfboards enter into and provide spaces of happiness. So that means it's actually a really, really valuable thing. Totally. In our world.
0: Final question. If you put in as many years as your dad, you've got 30 more before you retire from the surfboard business. Uh, right? 30 more. Holy. Well, no, he retired monks. earlier. You got 20. Let's give you 25 years left here. What happens with Channel Islands in the next 25 years? You've already conquered being the biggest surf brand in the world, surfboard
1: manufacturer in the world. Yeah. What happens? What happens? Well, uh, we just want to continue to do what we do. You know, that's people, I've gotten that question a lot lately. Like, okay, so cool. You guys got the brand back. Like, what's the big plan? There's not a big plan other than to be really, really committed to what we do, which is trying to make great surfboards that provide great experiences for the most people possible. That's what we want to do. And we can do that now in a way that is unfettered. You know, we have the freedom to do it in the way that we want to and the timing that we want to. And for us, it's a lifestyle thing. Like, I don't want to work myself to death. I like going to the beach with my daughter, Fifi, and my wife, Kate. And we go down to the river mouth at Rincon and we hang out. And, you know, I want to have the freedom to go anytime surfing with my six-year-old girl. You know, so it's a lifestyle thing for us. So we just want to continue to perpetuate the lifestyle for our community and our friends and our families. And then see our partners around the world do the same thing. You know, like all our partners around the world, I can see their faces right now. The guys in the glass shop and the girls running the business and the shapers. And I can picture their families. And I want to see them do the same thing. Like we got into this because it's a lifestyle and we love it. And I just want to perpetuate that. Right. So we're talking about doing things like starting classes on shaping and glassing on the weekends here in the factory because we want to expose a younger generation to the craft, Right? so that they have a pathway to be involved in it and to make these things and to enter into this lifestyle in a sort of wholehearted way. So we just want to continue to perpetuate that. And we're really committed to doing things well. Right, That thing of integrity and honesty and quality and generosity, we want to continue to carry that on. But just like my daughter Fifi, she's six years old. And 25 years from now when she's 30, I'd be stoked if she was enjoying surfing and making surfboards and playing with surfboards and I want to be on the beach with her kids and Grandpa, this board is sick. (laughs) Like, how good would that be?
0: (laughs) It'd be the best. And I mean, you nailed it. If you can perpetuate your position in the market and the lifestyle, you being able to go hunting for a month or go surfing when you want to go surf and spend time with your family, if you can gift that to everybody else who's involved with the brand. And yeah, Fifi's able to do it, but Parker Coffin's able to do it too. Yeah, and yeah. whoever else is involved and yeah, your licensee partners around the world are able to have that luxury of time. Yeah. yeah. That's all. I mean, that is the ultimate heart, gift.
1: It's, it's the lifestyle, you know? So that's a goal. That and to crush the competition. <laughs> <laughs> Here,
0: I thought it was all altruistic. <laughs> It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Britt. Well, it's been a wonderful afternoon. Yeah, Thank you for fun. your time.
1: Thanks. It was fun to go surf. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, needed it. Try those fins. Let me know how you like it. I will. Thanks.
2: Plagues and famines, frogs and locusts, walking on water, burning bushes, rolling the thunder, parting the waters too.
0: amazing thank you so much Brit obviously I had a blast hanging and chatting with you and I really appreciate you um, being so open in all the conversations that we've had and candid and sharing your story and the story of your family Um, I know I can speak for a lot of our listeners in that we really are rooting for Channel Islands as a brand and the Merrick family and so it's great to see you guys back in this position and uh, hope to support you guys in any way that we can you can find images of Brit, and I've even posted videos of him surfing and um, team riders riding their surfboards, all on surfsplenderpodcast.com. of course. There is a comment section, so you can go down to the bottom and leave a comment for Brit if you're so inclined. I will make sure to send those his way. And of course, click the support the show link at the top menu and support our work here so that we can continue to go out into the field and uh get these interviews with surf luminaries like brit all right thanks for doing that you can catch me on friday on the grit with Chaz smith this week and then next tuesday on spit with scott bass and then i'll be back here on wednesday on surf splendor of course this is david scales for surf splendor reminding you to get back into the ocean share some waves and
2: shred on. Your God's older, Buddha, Allah, Krishna, manifest with many faces, worship the world over in foreign places. I assume your God must love you. I know Jesus loves me. us too but if pride